Welcome to Marine Lions, a podcast about Mumbai's hidden worlds, from the suburbs to the sea. I'm Raghu Karnad. The sea in Mumbai seems to wait for us at the shoreline. It rises up at high tide and it retreats, and mostly it leaves us alone. But when the rains start, that line gets dissolved. The waves break onto the road and then it floods and parts of the city go underwater. We're all vaguely aware that Mumbai began on seven islands before the sea in between them was filled in and the city spread on top of it. But not many of us know just how much of the western half of Mumbai is built on reclamations from Kolaba up to Andheri and all the way to Mirabhayandar. Every year, the monsoon has to remind us that a lot of what seems like solid ground was once water, a place where rainstorms met rivers meeting the sea. And we think we're used to that, maybe because our own homes don't get flooded, or maybe because we haven't considered that the sea could get much, much more ferocious as we change our climate. It's May 2021 right now, and last week, Bombay had a glimpse of that growing ferocity. It was grazed by cyclone Taute, one of the strongest storms to ever touch the West Coast. Many people died. Dozens of sailors and oil rig workers were drowned. And as I watched this unfold, I was thinking of just one thing, a warning I read in a book by Amitav Ghosh, a book called The Great Derangement. Amitav Ghosh has written many books, novels and nonfiction, and he's almost unique in terms of how popular and widely loved his books are, while also being so filled with historical perspective and foresight. He has more awards and prizes than I can begin to list here. And anyway, I just want to tell you about one book to start out, The Great Derangement, Climate Change and the Unthinkable. It's a small book, but somehow spans the story of our historical and our imaginative relationship with the climate and the challenge we now face of confronting, imaginatively, the climate disaster that is rushing up on us, like a cyclone. So Amita, hi, thank you very much for joining us. I'm so glad to be having this conversation with you, especially right now. You have had a home for a long time, not in Mumbai, but in Goa, uh, and you were recently there. You must have been watching the cyclone closely and with some concern. Absolutely. Well, first of all, let me say uh, thank you for having me, Raghu. It's a great pleasure to be here with you, to be speaking to you. And yes, absolutely, I have a home in Goa. And I have for years now been uh, extremely worried about uh, this possible scenario. And I've been doing my best uh, to try to sort of inform people about the ways in which the, uh, the Arabian Sea is changing, you know. My warnings haven't always fallen on fertile ground, but uh, now people are beginning to understand that, you know, this is real, it's happening. This cyclone, I think that India, Western India actually got lucky. It peaked as a Category 4 cyclone, but I believe declined to Category 3, just as it made landfall. Did it affect uh, the village where your home is? Uh, see, in the first place, West India was in a way both lucky and unlucky. Yes. Unlucky in the sense that this cyclone trail all tracked the entire coast. So it hit state after state after state, you know, and caused a certain amount of destruction. But the eye was way offshore. Right. You know, I mean, it was 150 kilometers offshore of, um, of Mumbai. Similarly, I think it was about 100 kilometers offshore of Goa. And yet it caused incredible destruction. In Goa, my home is in a village uh, called Aldona, 
which is a long way inland, you know. Yes. It's a long way inland. I, I mean, I think as the crow flies, it must be at least 20 kilometers or 30 kilometers. And yet uh, it caused incredible destruction in the village. Felled trees, entire roofs were blown away. You know, and that happened all the way up and down the coast. You know, roofs were blown away. Everybody I know uh, had at least one or two leaks. My close friends had like uh, inundations in their homes. I myself, I lost a hundred-year-old uh, mango tree, you know. It was just knocked clean over. Fortunately, it didn't fall on the house. Otherwise, you know, Adam, it would have been a disaster. But it fell in the other direction. But uh, even uh, way inland... As to what what has happened along the coast, we don't even know yet properly. Yes. For for days afterwards, they were still recovering people from the sea. And, you know, the mango tree, that's that's a very moving loss. I mean, that, that that's something I can really feel from hearing about it. And, and it puts things in perspective. We talk about tens of thousands of trees being felled and, and you know, more than 100 lives being lost. Suddenly, you, you can... You get a sense of perspective when you think about uh, how little, you know, how painful it is to lose one tree. Especially this tree, you know, because it were, this tree had mankurad mangoes, you know, which are incredibly uh, delicious. People on the West Coast say that it's the best mangoes anywhere. Oh, I, I think see. people elsewhere <laughs> would dispute that. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, we can never reach agreement on which are the best mangoes. But uh, the mangoes of this tree were just completely wonderful. But the tree was much more than just a tree. It was an entire ecosystem. Yes. You know, there were all sorts of animals that it sustained. I mean, it, uh, you know, we got wonderful birds. Uh, of this and this huge squirrel population, you know. Uh, so watching, I mean, just seeing pictures of it when it had been knocked over was like seeing, you know, that scene in Avatar, you know, when the great That's tree right. falls over, you know. Of course. So yeah, it was it was absolutely wrenching. We loved this tree. It, it sheltered the house. It sheltered us. It sheltered our garden. But it, you know, what's striking is that it was uh, more than five years ago that you were writing the Great yeah. Arrangement. You were emphatically sort of explaining, you set aside almost a, almost a chapter in the book to talk about how Mumbai has been blessed by a historical climate in the Arabian Sea that's not prone to hurricanes, but that this could be changing as the planet heats up. And there hadn't been very much written about it, and you, and you worked on it and corresponded with an atmospheric scientist at Columbia University. His name is Adam Sobel. Can you tell us more about what you've discovered? You must be seeing in a new light now that it has actually come so close to your own home, almost like a premonition. Yeah, uh, it was exactly that. I was in uh, Goa uh, when Hurricane Sandy hit New York. Right. And that was also the time when I was thinking about and writing uh, The Great Derangement. That was what really made me think about uh, the cyclone vulnerabilities of Mumbai. And I started researching that subject. And what I discovered, actually, is that, you know, the Arabian Sea, its lack of cyclonic activity in uh, the last century was actually a historical anomaly. In the 18th century and early 19th century, uh, Mumbai was hit repeatedly by incredibly destructive cyclones. I mean, way back to the 17th century, there's a, uh, you know, there's a description by a Jesuit which says, you know, the city was just blown away. I mean, this was shortly after its founding, you know. Uh, so uh, Mumbai has been repeatedly devastated. But the last major cyclone to hit Mumbai directly was in 1858. And after that, there was a long downtick. No one knows why, but yes. the Arabian Sea suddenly went quiet. Right. So for a long time, there was this uh, a real downtick in cyclonic activity in the Arabian Sea. 
Then from round about uh, 2010, it started ticking up again. Mm -hmm. And it was also completely predicted. You know, there's a whole team of climate scientists at, uh, at Princeton who predicted uh, that the Arabian Sea would see increasing cyclonic activity. And that's exactly what we're seeing. I mean, I think this is the fourth year in which there's been a pre-monsoon cyclone, um, uh, you know, uh, hitting the, uh, the west coast of India. That's right. This isn't even the monsoon. See, the way, the way it works is that cyclones don't, don't happen during the monsoons then. Because what happens is that, you know, for a cyclone to form, there has to be this column of whirling air. So if you have what's called wind shear, which is the wind cutting across this column, then the cyclone can't form. And that's what happens in the monsoons, you know, the wind, uh, the wind cuts across the cyclonic column, so it can't form into a really powerful storm. But so... You know, what actually happens is that usually in the past, we've seen the cyclones uh, in the post-monsoon period, you know, uh, September, October, and so on. But this year, uh, the Arabian Sea is so, so warm, so hot, you know, that uh, it's formed already. And I can tell you this, I was in Goa in April, and uh, one day I went to the beach and I jumped into the water. And that water, which usually in April is fairly cool, it felt like a hot water bath. I see. Usually the sea is refreshing. I jumped in and I came running out. When you think about the about the city, we have ways of we have imaginative ways of kind of dispersing our fear, backing away from from the real picture of what a cyclone hitting Mumbai would look like. You recall what the Jesuit priest wrote about in a previous century. Mumbai is now so much larger, sitting on uh, on a kind of reclaimed estuary and and marine land. There's a description actually from the book that captures your imagination. I can tell that you're trying to provoke us to see, you know, what might really be, rather than to be complacent. Two of the lines go, the hills and promontories of South Mumbai would again become islands, rising out of a wildly agitated expanse of water. Also visible above the waves would be the upper stories of many of the city's most important institutions, the town hall, Vidhan Sabha, the Chhatrapati Shivaji Railway Terminus. Do you, do you feel like you need to issue these images so that people, so that we can be stirred out of our kind of complacency and our assumption that everything will ultimately always be the, be the same and will be fine? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I was, in a sense, trying to communicate a sense of urgency. And I've been trying to do that often, you know, because uh, let me give you an example. I mean, a couple of years ago, the Godridge Group, you know, which is a big real estate company in uh, New York, they invited me to address their company, you know, I mean, they have these company get-togethers or whatever. And I thought, I want to talk about Mumbai cyclone risks. And I knew that if I just talked about, you know, facts and figures, people go to sleep. So what I did was I wrote a short story about a family living on the Whirly Sea face. And they're faced with a cyclone coming in. And right. what happens? And to accompany this, I actually made a, a video out of clips that I found from other cities, you know, in cyclones. And you won't believe it, Raghu, but when I was watching the, uh, uh, the, uh, the videos from Mumbai now, they were exactly right. like the video uh, that I put together. Right. You know, it was astonishing. And I think it did have a certain impact on all these because Firoza Godridge, you know, who's a, an old friend and so on, uh, she did uh, uh, say afterwards that she was going to get to work on a, a disaster plan for Mumbai and some sort of disaster plan, I think, has been created. So let me put it like this, yes. you know, in relation to Mumbai, this cyclone, Cyclone Tautai, was not the big one by right. any means. Right. I mean, you know, it missed Mumbai by over 150 kilometers. Its eye never came 
even close to Mumbai. And even then, you saw the amount of destruction it created. You saw the psychological effect it had on people. So many friends in Mumbai are just deeply disturbed by what happened, as they should be. Right. The circumstance that I was writing about was about a direct hit, which has happened many times in the past. That's right. And, you know, the consequences of a direct hit won't be uh, just uh, geometrically worse than this, it'll be exponentially worse. That's right, yes. We should be looking at, a, at a, an event like, like, like Hurricane Katrina to understand that what real catastrophe could look like. And maybe then we'd have to multiply that by the scale of Mumbai and its particular vulnerability. Here's another aspect that the book highlighted that I had never thought of which is that the worst brunt of a future cyclone would be obviously faced by people nearest the water. But the way modern cities are built, uh, especially glamorous metros, the highest real estate values are sea-facing properties and in those very same areas. So then builders and developers in every part of the city establishment, people have a vested interest in not admitting this vulnerability and disaster risks, not even thinking about them. And do you think that's the same, that's the, the case with Mumbai as well? Look, let me say, first of all, that I was pleasantly surprised uh, by the municipal authorities' response. Right. Uh, I th- uh, and I think it's largely due to uh, Aditya Thakare. Yes. He seems to be a sensible man who has some idea of administration and how to handle things, you know, because he showed that also within the pandemic. Uh, And uh, even handling the second wave, Mumbai did so much better than Delhi or, you know, so many other cities. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, let's give credit where it's due. I mean, it is due to him. He did did undertake a big effort. They did a lot of important things. What they did not do, what they did not even think of, and what's never been thought of in relation to Mumbai is an evacuation. Yes, an evacuation, which could be what really saves lives. See. Or even saves half of the city, practically. In, in Gujarat, there was a massive evacuation. No? People, yes. I mean, the Orissa uh, sent its teams to Gujarat to organize uh, the evacuations because Orissa is the state that has developed the greatest competence, uh, you know, in dealing with cyclones. Uh, Mumbai doesn't have, at least as far as I know, and uh, in fact, you know, my book uh, and my collaboration with Adam Sobel started a whole uh, project of uh, trying to address Mumbai's uh, climate change risks, you know. And they too have not been able to find a proper disaster plan for Mumbai, not even an evacuation plan. Now, you just think to yourself, Raghu, suppose we knew that a, a more or less that a cyclone is going to make a direct hit upon Mumbai and that at least, let's say, 12 million people in southern Bombay yes. uh, are directly at risk. Yes. How do you get them out of harm's way. Uh, it's the same that's happened in Miami and in many cities along the uh, along the U.S. East Coast. Real estate companies won't let you alert people to these uh, to these disasters. I see because it takes down the it takes down the real estate prices. Right. You know. So that's the really creepy thing. Real estate people build higher and higher buildings, closer and closer to the sea. And people pay more and more for them, you know, including people who should know better. Uh, you know, I have a friend, I mean, I'm actually, <laughs> everyone in virtually in the world knows his name, but uh, has uh, bought uh, an apartment on the Whirly Sea Face, you know, and once invited me to visit and I went there. And, uh, you know, the first thing I saw was the sea. I mean, basically, like just across that narrow strip of... <laughs> That's right, thought, yeah. Are you crazy? But I didn't say it. Alongside that, there is our own uh, our own resistance to acknowledging these things. And that's, you know, perhaps the more 
interesting problem. One of the, a very touching passage, a short passage in The Great Derangement has you going to Kolkata and talking to your mother after you've looked at a World Bank report about that city's vulnerability and just talking to her about whether it's a good idea for her to stay outside, the weather's fine, and inside your mother is in her beloved family house. And the idea of, of leaving, you know, of the, of the real advance evacuation in a sense, um, simply can't take hold. And that, you know, that, that sort of brings me to the kind of challenge that, that you have set out to writers and to creative people in the 21st century, which is that we need to see extreme weather events and no longer see them as an expression of timeless natural rhythms. And maybe, you know, you know this isn't us being helpless at nature's hands, but as you write in the book, it's us facing the mysterious work of our own hands returning to haunt us in unthinkable shapes and forms. So tell, tell us a little bit about this, about the challenge that, that the book sets before writing, writers and creative people. Well, let me say here, first of all, that, you know, we have to be very careful about how we use uh, the pronoun we in these circumstances, you know? Yeah. And that's particularly true in relation to Mumbai, where the working class is uh, very closely connected to the hinterland, especially to Ratnagiri district. Right. A lot of them come from seaside villages. A lot of them are from fishermen families. And a lot of them are extremely mobile. They know how to use the railways. Indeed. Uh, you know, and my prediction is that the next time, when, a, when the big one comes... When the big one comes. The working class will get out. Whereas we will be trying to book flights in the airports. That's right. Airports. It's the middle classes that will be absolutely... Stuck and not just stuck. They wouldn't want to leave even if they weren't, even if they could. Because what does a middle class person's uh, uh, assets consist of? Property. Property. It's their flat. That's their main asset or and their car or whatever. They're not going to leave that and go. They're going to stay there. And we've seen this pattern replicate itself in Houston, in Miami, uh, constantly. So, in fact, most people are extremely reluctant to leave. In the case of Mumbai, the problem is even more difficult because Mumbai has bottlenecks. It does. You know, it's, it was six or seven islands, which were, I mean, the whole city was an island. But it's now connected to the mainland through a narrow, built-up uh, bottleneck. There are two roads leading out of Mumbai. Yes. Those roads are almost permanently traffic jammed anyway. How would you get those people out? It's, it's impossible. They would be sitting ducks. Okay, so I can see that you've actually been thinking about evacuation and disaster management plans in fairly specific detail. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, because, uh, you know, let's say through trains, how many could you actually evacuate? Right. Through planes, how many could... And remember, the planes would stop coming, let's say, the day before the cyclone hit. You know, the sea would be the only route. Uh, so you'd have to have... But does Mumbai have enough of a fleet? I mean, you would need a Dunkirk-like fleet, you know. That's right. To evacuate 10, 12 million people. It's really fascinating. And I'm glad that you clarified the, the sloppy way in which I was using we, because you're probably absolutely right that people who are who are the working class in the city have connections to places that mean they're probably much less naive about climate change. Of course than those of us who are in more elite positions, who sort of ultimately believe that the system is going to take care of us. Recent weeks, 
you know, just, just reveal to us how the system can sometimes give way. And then no matter what your level of privilege, no matter what your level of protection, you might be really terribly exposed if, if you haven't done everything you can to get the system to be more, uh, to be more watertight. So maybe the challenge again is, is working on uh, the right, is, is working on the more naive we, which might be people just like me. How do we begin to open up our imaginations to the new nature of the climate, the new nature of our relationship with nature, so that we don't remain uh, stuck in the great derangement, which is this, which is this inability to look at what we know is coming at us? Yeah, that's a very interesting thing, uh, you know, and especially again, as you say, it's very much. Uh, I mean, that derangement is very much a middle class problem. So that was the case with my mother. I mean, the reason she couldn't get her head around this uh, is because she's a middle class person attached to a house. I mean, you know, for her, that's life, is having your house. That's your entire world. It's, yeah. it's your shell. And, uh, you know, actually, uh, last year, at almost exactly this time, the cyclone Amphang uh, hit Kolkata. And it was a time I was stuck here. I couldn't go to Kolkata to help her. My mother was actually extremely ill at that point. Uh, not ill with COVID. She had COPD, you know, for years. So, I mean, in the house, when the pandemic started, we managed, I mean, on the phone, me and uh, my sister was looking after her. We transformed her, the house into a kind of hospital. Oh. You know, as many people have done. Yeah. So I was on the phone with, with my sister every day, telling them, do this, do that, do this, do that. Uh, we laid in all sorts of things, including oxygen cylinders. So she actually, the house managed to get through it because of the early preparation. Thank God, yes. Yeah, my mother survived it, but... Uh, sadly, uh, a few months later, she died anyway. I'm uh, so sorry. In August, yes. Yes, it was terrible because I was stuck here. I couldn't go. So, you know, that was one of the reasons why I went back to India in uh, in April. I was hoping that I'd be able to go to Kolkata and see my sister. But things got bad so suddenly I couldn't go. Uh, so this is what these catastrophic convergences yes. are now ruling all our lives. We have to accept it. We have to understand it. And especially middle-class people, I think, because they've been brought up with, as you say, this bourgeois idea of securities, uh, of a kind of predictable horizon, uh, they've become completely impervious to this. Uh, first of all, let, let me say, uh, thank you for telling us big personal story. I didn't realize that the loss had, had been so great and come so close. There's a particular kind of literary challenge that you set out in, which is that literature has to change and, and has to recognize the climate in its new form and our new relationship to the climate. Your more recent novel is an experiment in doing that. In fact, it does do that quite powerfully. This is Gun Island. So that this will be my last question, but I want you to share with us how your own response and the response that you've been also sort of, I think, seeking from other literary writers and writers of fiction has risen to the challenge. Well, that's a, that's a difficult question, uh, Raghu. And I can't say that I feel that I've adequately risen to the challenge because there is no adequate response to the challenge, honestly. These cyclones aren't the first climate change-induced disasters to hit Mumbai. You know, those two major rain bomb events that happened in, I think it was 2005. and, and 15 and then 18 and, yeah. yeah. So, you know, especially the 2005 event was devastating for Mumbai. And, you know, Mumbai has a huge concentration of artists, writers, filmmakers, and so on, you know, just as New York does. Right. You know, and I was very struck by this after Hurricane Sandy, you know, which really impacted New York so powerfully, especially the artist's district, Chelsea. 
you would have imagined that an art world that is responsive to the world would have produced some work about it. But there is no work. I see, yes. No work at all. Can you think? Uh, there are a couple of... Uh, I saw a nice film the other day uh, um, in which, uh, you know, Hurricane Sandy played, uh, played a part, but it's never regarded as a climate change film or anything like that. Uh, and, you know, that's the really striking thing. There are a large number of books now about New York being hit by climate change in the future. Novels, many novels. I see. But there's almost no novel about New York being hit by climate change today. In the present. This is the bizarre thing, right. you know. People are able to project their fantasies into the future, but they aren't able to deal with the reality of the present. Similarly, you know, in Mumbai, I have close friends who are artists, and some of these friends were very badly impacted by, uh, by the rain bomb events. You know, they were separated from their children for days, didn't know where to work. They were traumatized. And I asked them, I said, has your trauma in any way manifested itself in your work? And they were astounded by the question. They didn't even think it had, I mean, it was possible to ask such a question. Right. You know, and I think that is the derangement. And that's the challenge as well. That's right. That's right. Amitabh, you know, many of the conversations I've had on this series so far have sort of drawn attention to particular ecosystems inside the city, mangroves and rocky tide pools and the national park and uh, and how we might how we might protect them this conversation is a reminder a very stark reminder that there's a larger system which is the planetary ecosystem which we will need to protect in order to defend any part of the city and any of the any smaller part of our lives at all uh, so thank you for bringing that larger perspective to it i think that uh, probably all of our struggles for small gains for small social or environmental campaigns should all be keeping in mind that there's a, that, that there's a larger battle that needs to be fought. Absolutely. There's a much larger battle. This is just the beginning, however, you know. I mean, I, I hate to sound all gloomy and doomy, but this is just the beginning and things are only going to get worse. Well, thank you for bringing that back to our attention one more time. Thank you. And, Thank uh, you very much for having me. My pleasure. And I'm sure, and I hope that uh, everyone who listens to this will take it as a challenge from Amitav Ghosh to make your thinking and your creative lives uh, something that defies the great derangement about climate change rather than falls into it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.